Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This legacy uh, of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial injustice. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. Slavery and its legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Tom Thurston. Today we have a special episode with James Scott. James is a Sterling Professor of Political Science and Professor of Anthropology at Yale and is Director of the Agrarian Studies Program. He has also written many books, including The Art of Not Being Governed, An Anarchist History of Upland Southeast Asia, and Seeing Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed, among others. We're joining James at Yale's Lindsay Chittenden Hall as he presents on a chapter in his upcoming book, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. Here is part two of two. Let's listen in as James takes some questions from the audience. In this chapter on slavery, you refer to a is it, is it in cuneiform, or I forget what the source would be, from 1805 BCE, a collection of 469 slaves who were prisoners of war in Uruk, who then got incorporated into, I mean, that, that's, that's a fascinating kind of micro, the opportunity for a micro study. Could you say more about that? What did they become, uh, or do we know? Uh, what, what happened to that group? As a, as, an, as, an, you know, as a model of the, and also, I was stunned by this idea of 9,000 workers in textile workshops, whatever it was, 2000 BCE, that sounds like the original industrial slavery. I, I mean, could you say a bit more, about, and they're mostly women? Almost entirely, almost entirely women, and and incidentally, the textiles that they're doing are not um, uh, are not wool textiles or cotton textiles. Uh, they're linen, right? Um, and so it's uh, it's if you like the production of linen uh, cloth that we're talking about. It 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 happens that at the end of this, I came across the, these individual studies of. The House of Prisoners, I think that's how it translates, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there were, um, the, every military expedition, it, it's actually, it's not clear in the Mesopotamian case. It's kind of different for the Greeks and Romans. But in the Mesopotamian case, it's, it's not clear that all of the slaves are taken by explicit military expeditions. Um, to the hills to catch slaves. And it may be that there are, if you like, hill people who are capturing slaves and delivering them to valley markets, which is also sort of common in much of the, in much of the world. It gets to be, if you like, a specialty of stronger hill peoples against other hill peoples. The, these houses of prisoners, and this is the only one that I, I think we have information on, 
what's interesting is that it it's like a labor reserve mm. that is held and the slaves are leased out uh, for particular agricultural jobs or particular canal digging jobs in small groups and they make a point of not allowing them to be at work in large groups because they're afraid that they'll have discipline problems and people will run will run away. You call it a labor supply bureau. Yeah, it sounds like a labor, yes. And, and in fact, obviously people, much of the labor was controlled by things that were like temples, but temples were land holding units of officials and obviously they probably organized the slaving expeditions and then, then probably, if you like, made a profit on the disposal of this manpower. Uh, so these were not people who were, if you like, producing as slaves in the fields. These were people who were leased out um, to, uh, for a lot of public and private jobs of one kind or another. And it's also true, uh, as is often true, I'm sure many of you know more about this than I do, it's quite striking that there was this rivalry among elite families to have the most elegant, if you like, domus, uh, and have musicians and dancers uh, and so on. So there was a kind of competition for the decorative skills that added to the prestige of families that were competing among one another for just the way the courts of the Balkans uh, did uh, in getting gypsies and so on. There are many parallels to Africa here, but maybe we can pick up on that as we go. But go ahead, Done. sir. Thanks. That's terrific. How does it map on uh, onto Stephen Pinker's work on violence, or is, is his work just way too late to call? Oh, you know, I, I I'm embarrassed to say that it's a big book, Pinker's. Uh, and I've heard, it's one of those books about which I have heard so much that I feel that I've read it even though I haven't. I, I, ha I haven't read it. Uh, and we, we all have a lot of them. I, I actually have read about 60 or 70 pages of it and the one part of it that seems to me to be um, uh, not sustainable as near as I can tell is this idea that all pre-agrarian societies were homicidal uh, and the rate of sort of murder uh, and so on uh, was far higher than it is uh, today. I, I think there's no credible evidence that that's the case, right? It's not that he's necessarily wrong, but he doesn't have the evidence to say he's right either by finding a few mass graves where everyone was garroted. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I confess that, that that's the only part of the Pinker thesis that I confidently uh, ref refute and, and disagree with. And I'm quite prepared to accept some other portions, perhaps, of the Pinker thesis much later on. I don't know. Yes, sir. So I wanted to ask about <laughs> right. And so I'm interested in the relationship between Corvée 
slavery. It's a terrific point, and, and one to which I think I have a quasi-inadequate answer. That is, I speculate that the problem of holding the core population of these early states was made easier by a, if you like, a chain gang slave population that did the quarrying, uh, the mining, uh, and the brutal work that would likely have led to much higher rates of flight of the sort of core population. And that if you had a captive population that, and if the captive population was easy to come by, you could of course use them up and work them to death, et cetera, right? Uh, and uh, this would not, um, they could be replenished uh, relatively easily. The question of corvée and how Onerous it was is extremely hard to understand. And there are some there are some accounts that suggest that Corvée was like the classical African beer party at harvest time, when everyone comes and helps each other get in their harvest, and then uh, there's a kind of party, uh, and it's seen as a festive occasion. And some people, archaeologists, have gone so far as to suggest that the feasts at the end of pyramid building and sort of large monumental building was of this kind and that everyone wanted to contribute to the kind of glory <laughs> of the pharaoh uh, and of the king. That's sort of one extreme. Uh, and I find it impossible to know the degree to which, we know that irrigation, for example, even in Egypt was not organized by the state. It was organized village by village, right? Uh, and so one expects that there was a sort of an immediate payoff in cutting through the bank of the little levee of the, of the Nile to create the fields behind so that everybody understood that, that their village fields depended on this and it was relatively easy to organize the labor for that. For the monumental building at a sort of center, I, I would like to see the evidence that this was so happily engaged in. Uh, or road building um, for trade and exchange. So the problem, I guess, is at some other level, is what do you make of what I call the cosmological bluster of these early kingdoms, the idea that the god king, uh, a divinity uh, makes the rainfall, makes the crops uh, prosper, and so on. Is this self-hypnosis and a just-so story that elites tell themselves to sort of buck up their courage and create sort of internal unity? Is it, are the people in awe of these uh, monuments and their god king, and do they then want to sacrifice their lives and labor for, I don't have a clue. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. There are, of course, runaways and, and rebellions. So, I mean, we can't take this quite at, at face value, uh, but how much of it is, um, uh, how powerful the symbolic 
claim, and this cosmological bluster is for the underlying populations? I don't know, and I just throw up my hands. Uh, Ed, and then Alan, and then, yeah, Ed, right here. Hi, uh, I had a chance to read this last night, and I really, I really enjoyed it. And I, I noticed that you don't, you, you, you draw back from claiming to have a theory for the origin of slavery. You don't make that claim explicitly. But there are some theories about the origin of slavery, and I find that your argument- Origins of slavery? The origins of slavery. Okay. And I find that the argument that you're making um, complements to them and to see what you think. And the one is made by David Davis, who you probably know. Um, and his, he, he's the one who's most developed this theory. And then it's that slavery emerges from the domestication of animals. And that humans realize that by putting animals to work for themselves, they can get more done. And if you can get a human being to work for you in the same way, you can get them more done because they're smarter workers. And, and when this happened, if that's, you know, that, this is speculative. The other theory is developed by Joseph Miller, the African. And, and he argues that we should focus on slaving as the gerund rather than slavery as an institution. And he argues that slaving is, is something carried out by aspiring elites who are not the predominant elites but who want to assert themselves on top, right? And they slave, they, they enslave people in order to mobilize their power um, to make them more powerful vis-a-vis -vis the, the predominant elites who they want to supplant, right? And it seems to me that these ideas are very much complementary to what you're saying about the relationship between slaves and the agrarian and the first agrarian. Right. I, I, th I think I think they're I think they're complementary and the uh, the only thing that I guess I would add uh, to, to the first sort of theory Davis theory that um, is that uh, and I can't remember whether I'm just repeating what he might have said as well that in addition to the slave as a tool that you would use like you would use a domesticated animal with, now associated with Aristotle uh, that uh, that the reproductive life, yeah. uh, it seems to me, for the early stage is extremely important, partly because the manpower problem is so pressing. The, the other thing I was impressed by, and I don't know uh, the reason why it's clear to me that slavery is not a state invention, although states right um, improve on the institution, um, the, is that I was very impressed with Santos Gordoneros' book called Vital Enemies on all we know about pre-Columbian slavery. And it, it, throughout Latin America, you have groups that are, let's say, mobile groups, and then they're planting groups. And often it's the mobile group that will come and say, we want a tenth of your harvest, uh, and we'll be back next year. And if you don't give us a tenth of your harvest, we're gonna kill you or burn your huts, uh, and so on. And that begins to look like a little state, if you like, a protection a protection racket because you then want to have those people producing for you and not for somebody else, right? Uh, and so it's clear to me that that kind of um, 
that kind of control over the product and working life of a distinct other people is very common uh, before states. And I guess, and I'm sure that everybody who works on slavery is more sophisticated about this than I am, and the, the difference between chattel slavery, right, uh, and all other forms of insertment, appropriation of labor, appropriation of product. I mean, I think we're dealing, as with the state, when you have a state, it's fairly arbitrary. I, because I'm dealing with archaeology, I like to see a wall before I say, aha, we've got a state here. Uh, and on the other hand, it seems to me that the, the, the span of unfree labor is so broad Right, that at one end you have, you know, racialized chattel slavery, and at the other end you have forms of appropriation that admit to degrees of coercion and so on. So, Alan. Oh yeah. Um, thanks, Jim. I'm really excited to read the book. Um, I wanted to ask a question about immunity. Um, so Crosby and McNeil, in their stories of diseases and conquest, sort of point to this, the domus, the, the terminology obviously, as the origins of, of Eurasian immunity, therefore leading to right. you know, the conquest of the Americas eventually. So I wonder, if we don't want to use a teleology of conquest, what can we think of drawbacks to immunity? What are the... What are, the, what are the negative aspects of immunity for a civilization? A general level of bad health. That is to say, it, when a disease becomes endemic, right. it, it's not as if it's not without effects, mm -hmm. and actually much, but much lower rates of, uh, of, uh, of fatalities, if you like. Uh, but in a sense, you have a population that has some of the effects uh, of, different, uh, of different diseases that it carries endemically. And there, it seems to me, what's, what's, what is interesting is that what is this, uh, the elder McNeil's argument that around the time of Christ, the, the, um, the germ pools, if you like, of Africa, Mediterranean, India and Asia came together. You got the Justinian and Antonine plagues uh, and so on. And my understanding, although I'm by no means an epidemiologist, is that small populations that were scattered, that, that, were, that is to say Rome as compared to sort of, let's say, the Apennine Hills, the people who were scattered in small communities who didn't have the sort of numbers that could keep a disease endemic, it would die out. And then if a traveler came, or a merchant came, or a caravan came from a much larger population aggregation, that might be very fatal, that might be quite fatal. And so the way in which the Black Plague and smallpox reinfect areas, right, that have either been, not had it for some time, or are dispersed, and therefore it's died out relatively quickly. It seems to me that that the dispersed populations of the Eurasian continent remain vulnerable mm -hmm. in ways that large and rather sickly but endemic carriers of disease in major population centers are not, right? Um, 
like others are sort of anxious to, to, to read the, the book and, uh, and to see the chapter. But when you started off with uh, emphasis on the, on the various grains, there were kind of echoes of wood fogel and hydraulic civilization, and, and then it kind of shifted to Domar, uh, a sort of economic explanations about, about availability of free right. land and uh, et cetera. But, but then, um, rather than a kind of economic explanation, the case you then cite uh, with some detail are the 9,000 women who are, who are weaving. Uh, so the relationship to the grains then, I kind of, I, I lose the, I lost the train of, uh, of connection a bit. Uh, the idea of uh, animal husbandry or, or domestication is an interesting one, but doesn't work in the Americas. You don't have domesticated animals, but you certainly have states and, and agriculture. Uh, so that would seem to be more somewhat limited as well. So you've, you've, you've injected kind of cultural and political elements, as well as eco economic right. or, or agricultural elements as well. So I'm kind of interested to see what the relative weight right. is of, of these things and as a explanatory tool. Right. So Whitfogel doesn't help me at all. Uh, and doesn't help in Egypt, um, doesn't actually help in the Yellow River uh, as well, which is the place where Whitfogel wants it to work most, if you like. Uh, and so uh, I guess what's, what is incredibly striking to me is that the, that the degree to which the state is involved in irrigation works of any massive kind is actually quite rare. Uh, and it, 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 it happens, and it has to do, I think, probably in the Mesopotamian area with periods in which, dry periods uh, in which it's important to keep in production areas that are likely to lose water, and then the state will try to keep its population by digging some irrigation canals, and also drainage canals as well, just as important uh, as irrigation. But if you like, the relationship of the state to irrigation is something that, to me, it's always surprised me for the last 10 years uh, how wrong Whitfogel generally was. The, the interesting thing about the alluvium is, of course, it's a kind of poverty-stricken area in some ways. That is, it has this incredibly rich soil and these annual floods of the Euphrates. Uh, but it doesn't have any minerals to speak of. It doesn't have any of the products from it, from the hills. And it, it, they can, of course, grow the flax that make the sort of linen that's then woven into these. Uh, and so they actually need a trade commodity, right? Um, they trade a little bit of grain, but for the most part, it's cloth that they're, uh, that they're trading. And so they, it's hard to know what they would do without a great surplus of some commodity. And the only commodity that they can control the production of is flax and linen uh, and that cloth, as near as I can tell. And everything else that they need, including their monumental buildings and stone and obsidian, uh, that comes from the, that is, they are a very, um, at least, in the, late in this period, 
they are not a very, they're a rich wetland environment, but they don't, ha they lack a lot of products that they need. No. Michelle? It is a new world plant, you know. <laughs> but it, it is a tuber. Right. <laughs> um, but I'm actually interested in um, everything that you write about the littoral region and wetlands mm. and the large extent that that functions as um, a, a, a rich source of possibilities for non-state people. And in terms of the research that the Gilder Lambin Center is more known for in slavery in America, um, those possibilities certainly continued you know, throughout the 19th century in the Americas and even into the present wetlands and other kind of waterways as refuge oh, from yes, right. the state um, and from various but I'm wondering, not so much from the chapter that you're talking about today, but some of the other chapters, um, in terms of just the development of the state, I'm a little bit confused about the alluvial roots of the state, of the alluvial roots of both these non-state peoples and the state at the same time. And I'm just wondering to what extent is the story of state development a story of kind of littoral versus more upland terrestrial environment? So um, I, I'm going to answer it, and if I haven't been responsive, please ask it again. The, the thing that it actually astounded me, and I owe this to Jennifer Pornell's work, is the idea that well before there are any states in the southern alluvium, that this is this incredibly rich and varied and abundant wetland. And her point is not that uh, non-state peoples depend on alluvia uh, because they're non-state peoples in the hills and everywhere else. It's that the alluvia is so rich that it is possible going just a very little distance to gather from many different ecological zones uh, and food webs uh, so that it is, it, it, it is the next best thing to the salmon runs of the Pacific Northwest in terms of an easy, uh, easy subsistence. Um, and so, it, but it is, if you like, such a varied subsistence and these people know about domesticated plants and they actually plant a, a little bit, um, but nothing uh, at all substantial, so it is kind of, if you like, one of a whole series of subsistence options that are uh, available to them. The, uh, it, and until you have then this grain core and how that gets to be created is a kind of problem, but that, that only that can serve as the basis for a state because a varied subsistence is bad for the tax man, right? Um, and, and so no states, it's true, by the way, the Nile uh, Delta 
was, if you like, resistant to the state as well. And I take your point, and I've developed it kind of elsewhere. After I wrote a book called The Art of Not Being Governed, it was mostly about people running away to the hills, I realized that there's, a, I called this area after a Dutch geographer, Zomia. Um, I realized that there are a lot of wet Zomias as well. I think, what, there's something like 5,000 escaped slaves in the Great Dismal Swamp at the beginning of the Civil War, many of whom have been there for a generation uh, or two. The, the Everglades, historically. Uh, the Marsh Arabs. The Marsh Arabs at the, at the Euphrates. I mean, that's until Saddam Hussein uh, drained it. It was, for 2,000 years, a place that people ran away to to get away from the state conscription uh, and so on. So it, it seems to me that I did not do justice to the, the fact that a lot of non-state spaces are wet spaces rather than sort of hilly, uh, dry spaces. The Maroons in North America tended to go to swamps. The Maroons in Jamaica went to the mountains. Oh, I see the cockpit, right, I see. Right. Oh, that's interesting, and, and in Southeast Asia, by the way, and people don't sort of much pay attention to it, but they're the so-called Orang Laut, uh, who are uh, the people who took to their boats uh, and just kept um, uh, moving along the coast and among all the islands, uh, and they have the same language as people who ran to the hills, and the theory is that some of them ran to the hills and some of them ran to their boats, uh, and then they become the kind of Navy, mercenary Navy for the Malay sultans, uh, much later date. I, I want to just uh, a quick comment that I mentioned this to Jim earlier. We had no chance to talk about it. And this is a leap from your chapter, but we have a big initiative going at the center on contemporary human trafficking and modern slavery. And that field, such as it is, uh, barely a decade old, uh, studied in numerous disciplines, desperately needs history, as we keep saying. But it, it, it needs this deep history, too, it occurs to me. I mean, there's so much in your analysis here that would help people understand today why there are so many disposable people, why there's so much forced labor, chains of forced labor. Um, so now we have a new, whole new argument about deep history for contemporary study of in traffic. Incidentally, the the subtitle of the book is changed from what you read, oh. and it's called A Deep History of the First Agrarian States. Um, and so oh, yeah, we had the right one on the poster. Somehow, um, somehow it, uh, I began as a political scientist with anthropology envy, and I'm ending my career as an anthropologist with history envy, right? That somehow, it's somehow. That's the right direction by far. But the Anthropocene, I think the Anthropocene forces us all back to a longer and deeper account of how we got ourselves into the corner in which we now are. Absolutely. In fact, that's perfect. We didn't plan this. There's a, there's a line in, in his introduction, if you haven't read it. Quote, history at its best, in my view, is the most subversive discipline inasmuch as it can tell us how things that we likely take for granted came to be. I love that line, subversive. Uh, Jim, thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming out. Thank, thank, thank you for sharing the share.
Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.